it is a truth universally acknowledged. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. It's very nice to be back. I'm very sorry for the long absence, but for some reason this episode has taken me ages to get round to actually recording it. And in all honesty, Miss Rona has really done a number on me at the moment. Anyway, I'm back for the foreseeable. Hopefully there won't be such a long gap between this episode and the next, but you know, never say never. But anyway, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all doing good. I hope you're all keeping safe. And we shall begin with the episode. So as is probably expected of me, I recently finished Bridgerton. By recently, I mean I finished it maybe a month ago, but recent enough that I remember it. So with that in mind, I was propelled to watch, honestly, every other Regency era adaptation I could find and remember. And I rinsed through Austin and my Mills and Boons Regency collection over the past few months or so. It's been a month of Bennett's and Darcy's and very gentle hand touches. <laughs> I admittedly got a little bit obsessed as it's pretty much all I've been watching and reading. But all of that got me thinking, why are we so obsessed with the Regency era and why is it so easy to have these periods of obsession with it? I know myself, a lot of people I know, and I'm sure a lot of you listening, have these time periods where you just go all in with Regency and it's just all you want to watch and all you want to access. It's really fascinating to me. Something about the Regency era, Austin in particular, just captivates people so much and captivates so much interest. And I think the fashion really, really plays a huge part in this, particularly in film and media. It's enthralling. And so many people I know, like I said, just have these periods where that's all they want to watch. You get sucked into this world and this time period is both comforting and intriguing all at the same time. Now, with Bridgerton, although this show is majorly historical there are hundreds of people online that have become obsessed with it but many people seem to love and become equally obsessed with other adaptations that aren't ahistorical and are very true and represent the era in a better way than perhaps Bridgerton does think Emma 2020 for example if you haven't seen it it's um, a brilliant adaptation and Pride and Prejudice 1995 with all this in mind I really want to discuss that I'm going to give you a little background into Regency era fashion and some context and some specifics. But then I also want to discuss a little bit of research I did. I gathered some ideas, some opinions and some points of view about Regency fashion and why it's so lovable. But I also did some research into others' opinions about these adaptations in media and film in television. I've got to say there are so many of them floating around the internet and I really think that says something in itself. But anyway, as I said, we'll start off with a little bit of context into Regency fashion, just in case some of you aren't particularly clued up on what it actually looks like and what it actually looked like at this time period. Now, Regency fashion is really exciting in its own way. There's something to it that is instantly recognisable and different. It also fits so many taste levels, so many different materials and textures and shapes and colours. Really is much more exciting and intriguing than I even originally thought it was. And I really love that I've learned this information. <laughs> so Regency fashion is typically categorised between the period of 1811 to 1820. 
think just before Queen Victoria's reign, but after the image of 18th century France we have. It's this little pocket of time in the West of those early 19th century dates. Now you're probably thinking, but it's so short. I'm always shocked too, especially considering how iconic the imagery of this time period is and how strongly it's implanted into our brains. The Victorian era is also iconic, yes, but equally it was a period that spanned 60 years. According to Wikipedia, the term Regency or Regency era can refer to various stretches of time. Some are longer than the decade of the formal Regency, which lasted from 1811 to 1820, the period from 1795 to 1837, which includes the latter part of George III's reign and the reigns of his sons, is also sometimes regarded as the Regency era, and it's characterised by distinctive trends in architecture architecture, literature, fashions, politics and culture, if that clears things up at all. But ultimately, 1811 to 1820 is the more iconic time period in the images that we might have in our heads of Regency period, if that makes sense. Regency fashion is fascinating and it's extremely affected by cultural and political changes of the time. The Empire waistline, for example, is a really strong indicator of this. I'm going to read you a section from a book I have called Costume Cavalcade, which is a book I've had for a long time and I just love. It basically um, gives you hundreds of examples of historical costume from as early as you can think to the 70s. And it's a book that was originally published in the 50s and up until about the 70s was regularly updated to fit the era but it has some great images and some great really simple basic information about each era as it says towards 1800 enthusiasm for the antique became a passion which reached its climax during the napoleonic era the romans provided the models for literature art and oratory and it was the modern equivalent of the roman empire that napoleon hoped to create an attempt was made to revive the spirit of ancient rome by imitating its architecture as in the arc de triomphe in paris and the church of the madeleine built in the style of a greek temple antique models were everywhere to be copied napoleon was crowned emperor in 1804 the influence of the new court on art and architecture led, however, to an over-elaboration of styles. As the book says, the classical influence took on new forms during the empire. The sleeves of women's dresses were puffed and all the fullness was gathered at the back. To encourage the French silk industry, Napoleon banned the importation of Indian muslin, with the result that flimsy materials were replaced by heavier, more closely woven fabrics like silk and satin. The train was also ceasing to be fashionable and had disappeared by 1805. In women's dress, the waistline remained just below the breasts all throughout the period. The outer garment, which was cut on the same lines, was either the short spencer with long sleeves or the long regingote. I might have said that wrong. <laughs> Shawls were still worn and the fashion plates show how they were manipulated. In colour, they contrasted effectively with the predominant white of the dress and were either draped loosely behind the back, trailed along the ground or used to accentuate a graceful pose. They carried in the hand over the arm or arranged as a background for the white dress. With the tendency for dresses to fit more closely, the shawl lost its importance as a graceful accessory and was supplemented by a small triangular shoulder scarf. This did not encourage classical poses, but whether worn loose or cross over in front and tied behind, it covered the low décolletage. The bare arms of antiquity were hidden in long coloured gloves, which were gradually replaced by long narrow sleeves emerging from the small puffed sleeves of the upper arm. The dress, having lost its train, began to grow shorter and to show more of the feet and the flat shoes. Having reached a peak of plainness, it now began to be trimmed again and embroidered garlands of flowers, frills at the hem, applique work with a serrated edge in the same material as the dress and ruching were much in evidence. They all had one thing in common, 
common in that they emphasise the horizontal line at the expense of the vertical folds. This type of dress in its final phase had a boat-shaped neckline and completely exposed the feet. The headdress most characteristic of the period was still the pokey bonnet with its projecting brim completely hiding the face, although small hats and turbans were also worn. Men's costume saw the development of what ultimately became the long trousers of today. Both leather breeches and riding boots, as well as the knitted tights which had been worn in England during the Directoire, gave way in about 1815 to the long wide trousers which the sans-culottes of the revolution had not succeeded in making fashionable. Google sans-culottes about the French Revolution if you're unsure and that will make a lot more sense to you. <laughs> this was the final stage in the creation of modern male dress. Knee breeches were now worn only with court dress. In England, this was the period of Beau Bremel, known to posterity as the perfect type of the well-dressed gentleman. Between 1800 and 1816, English society was dominated by his good taste in clothes. He taught his clumsier contemporaries not only how to tie a complicated cravat, but an entirely new conception of elegance. More than anyone else, he was the inventor of the idea that to be well-dressed is to be unostentatious, and that is not the trimmings that make the suit, but the excellence of the cut and the way it is worn. I'll put some images on my Instagram page from this book just to detail specifically what clothes this little snippet was talking about. But I really love that. <laughs> the way it's written just kind of really gives you a strong image of the classical line and this idea of elegance that was really popular at this time period, but also gives you some background into why the clothes looked the way they did and the political contexts that adapted what was worn and how it was worn and the shapes that women and men were both seen in. So the empire style began as part of neoclassical fashion, which was a way to revive styles from the Greco-Roman era and from Greco-Roman art, which really showed women wearing those very loose fitting tunics, which were apparently known as peplos or the more common chiton, which were belted dresses under the bust. Now, as I learned and mentioned a little bit a minute ago, wearing these neoclassical shapes became popular, particularly in France due to the French Revolution and the aristocratic lavish costumes of old France and being seen in these could get you the guillotine so <laughs> and this of course filtered through to England which is the focus for this episode the fashions during this era were very different eventually in France and the UK for example pre-regency era the style put a lot of focus towards the hips and the waistline and fuller skirts and in the 1870s Marie Antoinette affected fashion changes in the west which popularized the chemise which was a loose light flowy mid-sleeve style with a large puffed skirt According to a video by someone called Enchanted Rose Costumes on YouTube, it caused quite a stir at the time as it resembles undergarments, but it became a very, very popular style. And this really was also the birth of what we know as the loose light Regency fashion and the influence of Grecian style, away away from the structured large dresses and excess of the pre-Regency fashion. But essentially, women's clothing styles fitted a very specific mould at this time. The empire silhouette where dresses were closely fitted to the torso, which was just underneath the bust and had a loose, flowing, longer skirt that would reach just above the ankles. And of course, as in any time period, you would have different styles of dresses for different times of the day. But essentially, all of these dresses fitted a similar shape in terms of the empire line. They were made of different materials and would perhaps be more simplified or perhaps more garish and would have appliques and things like that. But as I said, essentially, they would all be a very similar silhouette. In The Mirror of Graces, published in 1811, the author advises... 
In the morning, the arms and bosom must be completely covered to the throat and wrists. From the dinner hour to the termination of the day, the arms to a graceful height above the elbow may be bare and the neck and shoulders unveiled as far as delicacy will allow. Now, to cover the arms and the bosoms, often very small little jackets were worn that would just cover the bosom area, the throat, the neck and the arms. These were likely called mourning jackets and had a very, very specific image and gave the woman's body a very specific silhouette. And of course, day dresses were worn in the house and for walks and daytime activities, whereas evening dresses, which, as I said, were slightly more lavish and detailed with lace and other trimmings, were worn to events, to dinners and to balls. As in the Mirror of Graces, it says that the bosom and shoulders of a very young and fair girl may be displayed without exciting much displeasure or disgust. (laughs) Attractive to men, but also demure enough. The Spencer jacket was also a huge part of women's day dress and this is something that you can find spoken in quite a lot of detail in a book called Regency Women's Dress by Cassidy Pococo, which is a really great book and she goes through each individual element and date of women's fashion in the Regency era. Bonnets, a specific type of hat, was also a really integral element to Regency era dress and It's an item of clothing that really gives us that silhouette that we associate with the time period. And to me is an image that I instantly recognise as Regency fashion. The neoclassical influences here also were adapted to hair and women would have the specific hairstyle, which was masses of curls worn around the forehead and the ears and longer hair would have been drawn up into large loose buns on the top of the head which is very Greco-Roman in style but later into um, the 1810s is when you would have seen the middle parting with the two ringlets falling just in front of the ears a la um, Emma from this year if you haven't seen that give it a google and you'll know exactly what I mean also during this time period women required a great deal of underwear and undergarments underneath their dresses to get the very straight neat style of the empire line dress the first layer was a chemise or a shift which was a very thin piece of fabric with tight short sleeves which was often made of cotton and finished with a hemline that was just shorter than the dress Then women would wear stays or corsets and these are not kind of the Victorian image of a corset. They didn't require a waist tightening in the same way because obviously the empire dress did not necessitate a waist. It wasn't part of the silhouette, but they would also separate and push up a woman's breasts. And that was the function that these had specifically uh, to the woman's figure. And then over this, women would have a petticoat, which would have a delicate neckline very lacy and it was very sleeveless it was fitted at the back with little hooks and this was often worn between the underwear and the outer dress and it could have been considered a part of outer clothing and not necessarily underwear depending on what dress you were wearing and often the very top lacy part of the petticoat would have been seen just over the top of the bust line of an empire line dress 
underwear, in fact, was probably one of the most important parts of um, dress at this time period because it was what allowed the women to gain the body shape that they would be able to fit into the empire line dress. And therefore, it was very, very important. And that's something I really want to talk about further on in this episode, but you'll see. (laughs) There's a whole host of more details that I could go into. One thing I want to mention is that shoes were often flat, sort of little dolly shoes like you might have worn when you were a teenager. Uh, is what was popular and the kind of image of the Victorian high heel had not come in yet, which is quite interesting. But ultimately, the main areas of dress in this time period was a bonnet, a little short jacket, the empire line dress and the underwear. These are the most important elements of this time of fashion and those are the things added together that give us the iconic silhouette of Regency fashion that we know today. Now fashion plates from this time period are really really quite fascinating to look at. The image that we have of the sort of very soft pastel almost muslin satiny dress is actually not 100% in line with what was being advertised to women on these plates. Some of the dresses are quite gaudy and quite elaborate and have so many different textures and shapes and elements that you really would not expect, such as, you know, corseting on the arm, puff sleeves, ruched sleeves, lace. They're so elaborate and there's so many different patterns. You've got checks, you've got stripes, you've got colour blocking, you've got pattern blocking, there's rose appliques. There's just a huge host of things that you don't expect to see. And I think a lot of our idea of Regency fashion does come from these filmic representations that we're used to seeing. If you think about Pride and Prejudice from 2005, for example, it's quite muted, it's quite dowdy. And to me, that was my image of Regency fashion. It wasn't until I started to dig a little deeper and really give myself access to a little bit more of this time period that I found out how exciting it can actually be. Of course, the general um, silhouette and the shape, the bonnet, the jacket, the empire line, as I was saying, doesn't really change a great deal. That is really a constant throughout, but it's more the materials and the patterns and what they do with that shape that is really interesting. Well, now we have a little bit of background to the Regency Empire fashion as a whole in terms of um, political contexts and sort of silhouettes and iconic pieces. I want to talk about Austin specifically. There are two books here that I use that I found the most Um, user-friendly and the most interesting. They are Fashion in the Time of Jane Austen by Sarah Jane Downing and Dress in the Age of Jane Austen by Hilary Davidson. Now, Sarah Downing talks a lot about the Empire era being an age of elegance and romance, and that's best seen to her in Austen's novels. They are books that conjure a general image of romance and grandeur, and that's represented through clothes and the fashions of the time. As she says, Austen uses the newfound diversity of fashion in this era to enliven her characters. For example, Wickham's military splendour, Darcy's understated elegance, and Miss Tipsy's romantic fixation with white muslin. <laughs> So, of course, these flouncy, very alive visuals are written into Austen's novels and are easily translated into media. And they are perhaps what allows this era and these films to enthrall us so much. These individuals are characterised by their clothes. And so the clothes are not just pieces of fabric, but characters within themselves. Caps and bonnets play hugely into Austen's novels, for example, but are often discussed or obsessed over by specific characters who in real life would enjoy such pieces. And that allows the bonnets to become something more than just a hat. There's also a great deal of connection between nature and fashion in this era and Austen's books specifically. All you cottagecore people will get a kick out of this. But that connection, I think, really allows this fashion 
fashion to have a sense of beauty to it because we naturally connect it with flora and fauna and all the characters in her books are described often taking walks or enjoying nature and gardens and gardening in lovely pale white dresses and lace caps and that's a lovely image it's very serene and calming and I do think that probably allows this obsession to flourish it's a very specific image that's connected to this time period that isn't found in a great deal of other eras in the west I don't think the Tudor period for example a lot of people are also fascinated with but it's very dark and almost dingy it's a lot of deep reds and jewels and pearls and spices As Hilary Davidson explains in her book, women would visit town with the intent of shopping for fashions and would equally think hard about what they were wearing on these trips to town due to how they would be seen by their peers. She calls this dress transmission. And so fashion and its social levels plays a huge role in Austen as well, but allows us as readers to get a strong idea and image of how important clothes were and what individuals would be wearing if they were in certain spheres shopping for gloves or bonnets and local village haberdasheries whilst wearing your best walking outfit is a very Austin style image and one that is highlighted by the fashion. The fashion conjures our images of the spaces and the characters and gives us insight into the working of these spheres. But of course we can't talk about fashion and spheres without discussing the balls, the dinners, the events, parties. Austin clearly loves them and I do think these play a huge role in society's love of and visuals of fashion in this era and Jane's influence plays a huge part in this. Dance cards, headdresses, lace, dancing was hugely important to the Regency lady and so were the fashion she adorned whilst doing so as I explained. As Sarah Downing says, dances were a way for a woman to display her beauty and therefore this is where lavishness of perhaps older eras might have been necessitated. At home or in town women could wear muslin and other particularly more maybe dowdy materials but balls were where chiffon, lace and florals came into play and there was a level of romantic glamour on display and this as I said Austen novels are full of this for men and women alike. So, with all this very strong Austin imagery of Regency fashion in mind, the pure eleganza of empire silhouettes and dances, I want to talk about Austin and other Regency adaptations. Now, in this section, I want to discuss some opinions and ideas, not of myself, but of others. I feel like I've gone into some detail about how Regency fashion looked and what was beautiful about it, but that's really just my own perspective. In prep for this episode, I watched a lot of YouTube videos just to gain some individual opinions and ideas about these different adaptations, particularly from people who might be knowledgeable about fashion and are clearly interested in Regency era adaptations. But the sheer number of these that I found online was quite telling in itself into how enthralled people are with Regency fashion. And there were a lot of different ideas and opinions floating around on these different um, adaptations and in these different videos, especially when it came to fashion particularly. And really when it comes down to it, you don't conjure an opinion or an idea on some unless you already have a really strong interest in it in the first place. The detail that many people offered in these reviews is really telling and I think this era is so beloved and enthralling but it's beloved and enthralling perhaps for a reason and there were some great points made that I just want to go through with you. All of the YouTubers that I mention and the videos I mention are available online particularly on YouTube. (laughs) Um, So if you just type Regency fashion and then Regency fashion by these different adaptations, you will find the videos. There was almost too many to (laughs) detail online what I watched, but that's the way that you'd have access to these. But I want to go through film by film and talk about some of these videos I saw and the ideas within them. There's some great information and some points noted that I didn't even notice when I watched these movies myself. And they give us some insight into both 
these movies particularly and the fashion they've created, but also tell us what to love and why. So I think I'm going to start off with Emma from 2020. This is a movie that didn't really keep my attention for some reason while I was watching it, but I can't deny how amazing the fashion in it is. It's brilliant. It's so bright and colourful and exciting in a way that Regency fashion was and can be, but isn't often seen on the screen. Karolina Zabrowska has a great video on Emma and has some interesting ideas on fashion as a whole. She's a great YouTuber. As she explains, it's not our idea of traditional Austin, as I said. It's a bit more arty and comedic in a way other adaptations don't play with as much. She also talks in depth about the silhouette used in this movie and how important silhouette is within historical costume. As she says, with the silhouette of a costume, if that's right and on point for the era, you have a lot more ability to play around with other elements like colour and texture in the costume, which is really interesting actually and something this movie does really well and also something the Regency era allows for as I said it didn't alter a great deal the general silhouette but what was played with was all the other pieces of the costume. In terms of Emma the waistline was very good for women in particular perhaps as she says it might be a little straight for the era but on the whole what you would have expected to see. The vibrancy of the colours were fun to see compared to the toned down nature of so many others. So as she says the looks experiment enough to show the director's vision but are still historically accurate in terms of colour and shape and texture. Bernadette Banner on YouTube also talks about something she calls cheeky details, which I think is really cute. She talks about small things that Emma does well that I definitely agree with, such as rulio trimming, white work, embroidery, clocked stockings and ear cut collars. Give all these a Google if you can't visualise them or you don't know what they are. They're quite hard to describe without seeing them. But also, importantly, Emma wears shifts, not just a simple corset with nothing underneath or covering it. I love to see this in Emma and so did so many other people and Bernadette Banner by the looks of it. The scene where Emma warms her bare bum in the fire is also very very important. People didn't wear underwear as we know today, not shorts or anything similar as I mentioned. The shift which was a thin loose dress under clothes served that purpose. So Bernadette talks about how she loved seeing that little detail. But yes, anyway, Emma was very colourful. It was fun and some of the costume details like the bright yellow and the feathers were so great to see. And I love that so many people love that too, even if the narrative of the movie was not my favourite. With this idea of fun and vibrancy in mind, I think we should talk about Pride and Prejudice from 2005. It's the direct opposite. It has such a soft and muted colour palette, but I would say it's one of the most beloved adaptations of Austin, from what I've seen online at least. I mean, maybe it's just this version of Darcy that people love, but it's interesting to me because the fashion is almost quite drab, especially when you compare it to something like the recent Emma. Perhaps that is actually what people love about it. It feels historical and it fits within people's ideas of the era being muted and pastel. When, as I said, in fact, Regency was often very playful. I don't know. That might be wrong, but it's just an idea. Abby Cox on YouTube has a great video of this film. As she says, a lot of research was apparently done on this movie for the period and the costumes and was designed with a more artistic vision. As this version is slow and muted and almost quite dry, but she says there is a real thoughtfulness to the fashion and the tone and it's very nicely consistent. As Abby says, in this time period, people love to play with colour, as I said, so it does get boring to see such brown palettes always used in Austin adaptations. But at least this movie kept consistent in time and varied between the characters. However, apparently Joe Wright, who was the director of this movie, set his adaptation earlier than when Pride and Prejudice actually came out. Apparently, according to Abby Cox, in keeping with the very first version that was written sometime around 1797, 
seven to eighteen hundred, so pre what is typically known as Regency and pre publication of Pride and Prejudice. The director apparently said, "I find Empire Line dresses are very ugly." So I did some research. Although the novel was published in eighteen thirteen, Jane Austen wrote her first draft of Pride and Prejudice, then called First Impressions, around seventeen ninety seven. So we use the fashions of the earlier period, where the waist on dresses was lower and more flattering. So while some liberty was obviously taken by the director, the consistency of the palette and the clothes is perhaps what makes this adaptation so beloved. Talking of, I quickly want to mention the um, 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice and oh man, there's an abundance of ideas towards this version. It's extremely beloved, I think. What's great in terms of fashion with this version is apparently that they used real clothes from the 1810s, such as handkerchiefs and bonnets that were borrowed from the V&A. I mean, that poor delicate lace, but nevertheless, it's a very cool approach to get that real historical accuracy. And perhaps that's why it is so loved. That sense of reality is so ingrained because it is real, you know? Back to Pride and Prejudice 2005, there was apparently a flash in the pan phase in 1799-odd, 15 years before Pride and Prejudice was released, where silhouettes did have a lower waist. Not quite on the waist, but just above compared to the Empire line, more an in-between waistline on the ribs. And that small phase is likely the inspiration for the fashion shape and style of this movie, 2005 version. Watch around six minutes into Abby Cox's video on Pride and Prejudice 2005 to see some images of these dresses. They're a very, very good visual and it's really interesting to note. So whilst these dresses aren't historically inaccurate per se, they are not quite as accurate as perhaps the 1995 version, which actually used real clothes and was using real clothes from when Pride and Prejudice was actually published. Kat's costumery also talks about the clothes from the ball scenes in this movie. She talks about the extras outfits and the mix of silhouettes that they're wearing, which is interesting to note as we can forget how important costume is for everyone in a scene, not just the protagonists. As she says, none of the Bennets have very expensive looking garments as would be expected, and they're actually well suited on the whole to the Bennet family. But the background characters have a range of waistlines from a mix of dates. With that in mind, the hair is often lovely in this movie, I will say that. And with this movie, accessories are quite limited, so it's hard to compare these with both the time period and other Pride and Prejudice movies, which is an interesting choice in itself for this period, a period that is so beloved for being quite lavish. But anyway, I couldn't talk about Austin adaptations without talking about Pride and Prejudice, obviously. And the 2005 version for me, something about it stands out because it is so muted. And it's interesting to see that in an Austin adaptation, especially when you know how colourful and exciting Regency fashion can be, and particularly comparing it to something like Emma. It was also interesting to hear other people talk about it and their opinions on it. And it seems quite mixed, to be honest. There's, again, a real love for this movie as it fits our ideas of history. We forget that people wore a lot of yellow and pink, etc., etc., but I did also like hearing people's opinions towards why it perhaps didn't fit with this time period and what was wrong about it. And the idea about the waistlines really stood out to me. So I really liked, I really liked watching those videos. Well done, Abby Cox. But okay, we've talked Pride and Prejudice. Let's talk Bridgerton. 
Now, of course, as it's new, there is a massive host of videos on people reviewing the show, discussing the characters, but also discussing the fashion. And it's very interesting take. Some positive, some negative, of course, but I'm going to go through these as it's really interesting to compare. I loved hearing all these different ideas and opinions. And this equally is interesting because it's Regency, but it isn't Austin. I always thought it was Austin specifically that we as a culture were in love with. But Bridgerton is maybe proving me wrong. It maybe is just a Regency era in general, both historical and less historical, as in Bridgerton's case. <laughs> I'll start again with Carolina Zabrowska as her channel is really great and she describes it as Regency fan fiction, which is so true as that's basically what the original book was. The difference between this and the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, for example, is just major. Bridgerton is so costumey and sparkly and garish and it begs the question as to what I said earlier, which part of the Regency we culturally love so much. These two versions are worlds apart, but arguably equally beloved. Bridgerton is just newer, so obviously there's going to be more about it. The costumes in Bridgerton are very distinct and the taste level is sometimes a bit questionable. Aesthetically, they are a real eyeful. Don't watch a show like this with a migraine I'll say that <laughs> but anyway the general opinions on Bridgerton have been quite mixed Carolina says they feel plasticky and she says it's not only that they are inaccurate but to her they look cheaply made and very polyester which I can't say I disagree with of course being historically accurate is almost the point it's not a show that's supposed to show us what people in 1813 were actually wearing it's a cartoony version almost Mina Lee talks about this in her video, which is equally great. Specifically, she talks about how unnecessarily over the top Lady Featherington is. As a character, she cares a lot about status. And so being so over the top and showing so much of her body in a sexualized way doesn't really fit her narrative as a character. Her dresses have the empire line, but they're almost Victorian in terms of the bust. There is interesting choice and a silhouette I've not ever really seen used before. I can't say I like it or not. And online, a lot of the opinions were quite similar. It's interesting, as Mina was saying, for her character as a narrative choice, it was strange. Mina actually had a lot of other ideas of how they could have played with the garishness, but kept it less sexual. And I thought that was really interesting. She was talking about making enlarged bonnets or really dramatic hairstyles. And I think that would have been a really interesting way to play with it. However, as I said earlier, people did love colour in this time period. They loved garishness and flourish. So it was fun to see some colour and some playfulness. But some of the design was somewhat jarring. A lot of people had similar ideas by the looks of it, but something this garish is difficult to please everyone. Some people enjoy very muted tones and some people don't. So you're always going to run this risk in terms of costume, especially when you get people watching who have seen every adaptation under the sun and no Regency fashion down to a T, you know. The fact that opinions have been mixed is proving really my point of how much we loved it. And also slightly explaining why there's almost something for everyone. Regency can be Bridgerton or it can be muted. You get the best of both worlds, so to speak. Back to Carolina Zabrowski and she speaks about getting the feel of the era while still getting the unique perspective of the designer. And to be fair, that's a really hard balance to strike, which is a great point. Modernizing historical fashion is hard, but you must have detailed understanding of the era to do it well. And that's something Bridgerton has really attempted here that maybe other adaptations haven't played with as much other than perhaps Emma. Just think back if you haven't seen it maybe google it to the tv show rain and that interesting attempt on early modern fashion very camden market <laughs> 
A mix of reviews I read, however, did say that the point of Bridgerton is that it's a little bit fantasy and it's meant to be OTT and garish. In that aspect, the designer has had a huge job to undertake as historical outfits are very labour intensive and incredibly detailed in a way that we don't really understand today. Off the rack just did not exist. So to try and balance the two is commendable in its own way. There's an article on um, Vogue.com that interviews the costume designer who is 71-year-old Ellen Mirajornik. I might be saying that wrong, Ellen M on Instagram. But it's pretty enlightening in terms of the scale of the project. As she says, they made about 7,500 different individual pieces from hats to shawls to corsets. For the main character Daphne, there are about 104 costumes alone. The interviewer also asks about the Empire silhouette and how they modified it to fit the Bridgerton's general vibe. Apparently they wanted some fluidity to the costume, so they experimented with that using layers and different materials. And that's perhaps what makes them seem ahistorical in a way. You have the silhouettes, but you have that silhouette in a way that's more modern and has more movement. However, a few YouTubers have made the point that in the Regency era, people did not actually have that many clothes. Many were handmade and expensive and dresses would have been altered to fit to you. Outfit repeating obviously existed, but small changes would have been made. A woman would have day dresses and evening dresses, but not one for every single day and for every single hour. So in terms of this, did the designers really need to go quite so big? It would have been really interesting to see this done, outfit repeating with different accessories or changes made. I would have love to have seen that and other YouTubers made the same point and it would have been really fun to see that mix of new costumes mixed with other ones you've seen because there are so many in Bridgerton that you can't actually remember any of them and none of them really strike much of an interest in your head because you see them for maybe a minute in each scene. Although arguably the sheer number of outfits and their real grandeur was the hard sell of this show. So in that sense, and the fact it isn't meant to be historical is understandable why they went so hard. And for a lot of people, they may not be interested or may not think that they're interested in historical television. So Bridgerton was really a way for them to foray into that world and be excited by fashion. So, you know, commendable in that way, I think. There are, though, as I mentioned earlier, many more elements to Regency fashion than just dresses. And the undergarments are a huge, huge part of this. As Mina Lee says in her video, the corseting and the underwear in this show just is a little all over the place. No one, it seems, is wearing any shifts. And when there are the you know famous undressing scenes, the dresses get ripped off and it's just straight corset. However, that would have not been the case. There would have been layers and shifts underneath and over the top. And it's interesting to me, and as Mina Lee says, that in culture we only see corsets as sexy. However, shifts and undergarments are sexy in their own way. They're all laced up and tight-fitting to the body. So it's interesting that Bridgerton went this way as to just show you the corset. She also talks a lot about accuracy in terms of court dress, so what was worn in royal households. She has some great points to put forward here, and actually I learned a lot from her video. It made me think about that element of Bridgerton a little differently. There's the part right at the beginning of the show when we see Daphne and the Featherington sisters enter court, and they are in very typical Empire Regency dresses that are very soft, muted colours, and that is their way to introduce themselves to the Queen and into court in a way that is demure and letting people know that they are worthy of a husband. However, as Mina says, and as my research after the fact told me, in the 1810s, hoops were actually incorporated into court dress and fashion plates show us this 
odd, disproportionate silhouette in a dress, which had an empire line at the top, but also with a huge pre-1800s hooped skirt. She shows these fashion plates at about 15 minutes into her video. And it's a really interesting thing to note and a really interesting image because it's an area of Regency fashion that you don't often see. And it's a shame that they didn't incorporate that into Bridgerton because I would have loved to have seen these absolutely bizarre silhouetted dresses. And I think it really would have fit in line with the garishness and the lavishness of the costume in Bridgerton. Imagine seeing tiny little Daphne with her empire line and then a huge hooped lace skirt. I would have loved to have seen that. And it's I think it's a shame that they didn't include it, honestly. But anyway, there is so much that you can talk about when it comes to Bridgerton and the fashion because as I said that is the real hard sell of the show and there are so 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 many costumes to talk about it's almost impossible to do it within 10 minutes of this podcast Um, watch the show if you haven't if you're interested in the fashion and then afterwards watch 2005 Pride and Prejudice and you'll understand what I mean about the crazy comparisons between the two But yes, Bridgerton is extremely OTT and there is a lot of opinions online about it, both good, both bad, mostly in terms of the women's fashions because the men's fashions um, don't vary in quite the same way. And I will end just talking about poor Penelope's sliced bust. That empire line. Oh my goodness. So as you can see, um, a lot of YouTubers seem to have a lot of opinions on all of these different adaptations. Obviously, there's a huge deal more that I could talk about. And if you're interested, all you need to type into YouTube is Regency Fashion Movie or the name of the movie. And there's going to be a host of opinions and information about the fashion in them. Way, 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 way too much to talk about in a short podcast episode. However, my point still stands that the fact that there are so many that exist clearly shows that people love this era for fashion. And I think the context that I talked about earlier really explains why. I also actually did little research into some ideas about Regency fashion and these adaptations on my Instagram page, which is called Silhouettes Podcast. I think this nicely connects um, the context of Regency era and our love for it in me. Media. These are the questions that I ask. Number one, what is it about Regency fashion that we are so in love with? Number two, which adaptation that you have seen represents the era best in your opinion? Number three, overall, were you a fan of Bridgerton? Number four, what about the Bridgerton costume design did you like or dislike? Number five, which character's costume did you enjoy the most? If I'm honest, the answers really did not surprise me. What was mostly said was that people enjoyed the individuality of the fashion in this time period. They like the lightness of it and the floweriness it exudes. And also the fact it's bookended by two very OTT lavish eras, pre-Regency being heavily detailed in much lighter colours and the Victorian era being quite dark and heady. I think this is really fascinating and really does give some insight into why we enjoy it so much. Now, of course, there are people all around the world that obsess over the details in every single era, in every country, in every culture. But I do think it's safe to say in the West, there is a real effect that British Regency fashion has had. I know colloquially, a lot of people will describe historical fashion in the blanket terms of like Jane Austen or Jane Austen-y. Clearly, their imagery is so strong, it represents history as a whole to 
some people, old-fashioned olden times. But there is also a myriad of people who dress in Austin-style Regency fashion on the daily or reenactment has become a big part of their lives. There are a few time periods that elicit such intrigue and I do think the movies and the TV shows have a lot to thank for that. As young people, I'm sure the movies were the first foray a lot of individuals had with Regency fashion and perhaps historical fashion in general. And it's safe to say they likely planted a seed in these people's minds, you know? I may be wrong, of course, but I definitely wasn't reading Jane Austen at four years old. But I was, however, in love with Austen movies from a very young age and can credit the romantic atmosphere of these movies and the fashion to a lot of my interest in fashion later down the line. And I do think these movies have a way of doing that, that specifically when this time period. Anyway, I think it's safe to say that a lot of people just bloody love Jane Austen era fashion and it's lovely in a very specific, detailed, Austen-y way. <laughs> it offers us something other time periods maybe cannot and this really allows love and intrigue with it to flourish. The sheer amount of videos I found discussing Austen movies in Regency fashion really credits this. It's beloved so much so that people want to discuss it online and in books and with each other. I'm one of those people right now. <laughs> the fashion plays a major role in that and as I said becomes a character in its own right in so many of these stories. Regency fashion is fun, it's flouncy, it's bright but it's also soft, it's calming, it's muted and somehow it manages to do both. There is so much to it that allows for obsession to grow and can offer us something so unique and romantic. Do go and watch some of the videos and movies I discussed. There are great fashion history YouTubers out there and they all deserve some credit. And also watch Emma 2020 just for those yellow dresses because they're so beautiful. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. It might be a little bit all over the place, but there was a lot that I tried to pack into it. I'm not quite sure why I did that to myself. <laughs> I promise I will try and not leave it so long between episodes next time. I'll try. I'll really try. I want to say thank you so much for all the lovely responses I've been getting on um, my Instagram page. I love to hear that people are enjoying my podcasts and it's been helping them in lockdown and everything like that. As always, if there is a topic you want me to discuss, just let me know and I'm more than happy to fulfill any wishes. It's just Silhouettes Podcast on Instagram. But as always, everybody, stay safe and stay fab and I'll see you soon. (laughs) 